So it was Shemitah, the sabbatical year in the land of Israel when there's no farming. And a Jewish farmer is outside standing in the middle of his field. His neighbor comes by, he sees him, he says, Slichadon, excuse me, Samata, what are you doing here? You know, you're not supposed to be farming right now. And he says, oh, don't worry, I'm not farming. He says, what are you doing though? You're standing in the middle of your field. He says, this, oh, I'm just trying to win a Nobel Prize. He says, yeah, how, how so? Are you winning a Nobel Prize where you're standing here in the middle of your field? He says, well, don't you know every year they award the Nobel Prize to someone who's outstanding in his field? So Parshas Bahar um, begins describing the mitzvah of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, the seventh year, when there's no farming, the uh, Shabbos-like rest for the land. Now, in uh, the Meira Nevuchim of the Rambam, it uh, explains some rational explanations for different mitzvahs, and it mentions that uh, the idea, or one of the rational explanations behind Shemitah is to give the land a chance to rest, so it can replenish itself. Now, crop rotation, that's, that's the technical term for it, that's not a uniquely Jewish concept, that's not unique to Torah, um, you know, everybody knows about the concept that you have to let a, it's called letting the, the land lie fallow. You have to let a, a, a land, you have to let a piece of land lie fallow uh, every once in a while. Uh, and uh, because the nutrients become depleted over the years, season after season, putting out uh, crops, and then you let it rest. So that's, that's, uh, that's something everybody knows about. That's not unique to Torah. Um, but what is unique about the mitzvah of Shemitah is that crop rotation is Kishmai Kainhu. It's like its name implies crop rotation. You don't let all of the land lie fallow at the same time. You rotate and you leave an open field so it can rest for a season and you, and you plant in the other fields. Shemitah is when you let all of the fields, the entire land, all lie fallow at the exact same time. And nobody does that. I mean, only the Jews do that. And you could understand practically why that would present a challenge, because if you have the entire land uh, lying fallow and there's no agriculture, so what are you going to eat? And in fact, this is precisely the challenge that the Torah acknowledges in our Parsha. Um, it says, and if you're going to say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? We're not allowed to plant. We can't, we can't reap our, 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 our produce. So Hashem says, don't worry. I'm going to send forth my blessing in the sixth year. The sixth year will provide enough for three years, meaning for the year itself then for the seventh year where there's no agriculture, and then also for the eighth year where you're getting everything up and running again. So the sixth year is going to provide triple the bounty of a regular year. Okay, fine. Um, but here's the question. If the land needs to replenish itself in the seventh year, then the land in the sixth year must be the most depleted, the most used up. And in that year, you're going to tell me 
that that's the year that's going to provide triple the normal amount that a normal harvest provides. And and don't say, well, you know, Hashem can do whatever He wants. Of course Hashem can do whatever He wants. But if Hashem's doing whatever He wants, then He can make it so the land doesn't rest at all. <laughs> so if the land is resting in order to replenish, doesn't make sense that the sixth year, which should be the most used up year, should be the, the worst crop. That's not only going to not be the worst crop, and not only to be a normal crop, but it's going to be triple of a normal crop. Okay, so this is what we have to understand. And um, we're going to get back to this, but I want to tell you something, uh, something even more perplexing than how the sixth year would give a triple bounty. And that is, uh, I read a few years ago, there's a bulletin called Lubavitch International. And in it, there was a story about a Chabad house on campus at uh, the University of Washington, in Washington State, in the Pacific Northwest. And it said there that when the Shluchim first came to campus, they would serve traditional matzah ball soup to attract the students to the Friday night Shabbos dinners. And then they stopped. Why? Because the Jewish kids didn't know what it was. Yes, that, that's right. We're talking about people who are so far removed from Yiddishkeit, not just from uh, Jewish observance and religion, but even from Jewish culture, that they don't even know what traditional Jewish cuisine is. So the matzah ball soup, which normally is like you smell the smell and it triggers this nostalgia, this, this emotional reaction, didn't have that. It, it, there was no emotional association. There was no, it didn't mean anything to them. They, they didn't recognize what it was. So then there was no point uh, serving it to them. So that's kind of weird. I mean, we all know that when you, if you have to fight dirty, you know, you need to use a dirty trick. If you need to get a Jew to melt, if you need to suddenly, you know, <laughs> make them receptive, there's these little buttons you can push, a little emotional triggers, you know, a, a Yiddish word, some Jewish humor, or, you know, Jewish cuisine, you know. Um, corned beef on, uh, on, on rye, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And you're talking about, though, these kids who are so many generations removed from, from Judaism, even from cultural Judaism, that they don't have those buttons to push. You can't even... <laughs> so, so how are you going to get them? And, and, and what, what's the most puzzling thing is, what doesn't make sense, if it's Friday night and there's a Jewish kid on campus and he has no idea what a matzo ball is, what's he doing at a Shabbos table for? It's Friday night. He should be at the bars with every other college kid. And if on the other hand... You're telling me he doesn't want to be at the bar. He wants to be at the Shabbos table. How are you going to tell me he doesn't know what a matzah ball is? Either way, the whole thing's weird. It makes no sense. And yet, there's a kid who doesn't even know what a matzah ball is, and for some reason, he knows that he's supposed to be at a Shabbos table. So, if he doesn't know what matzah balls are, what's drawing him there? How does he know to be there? Why is he there? So I want to tell you a story. About 150 years ago, there was a, a prominent Jew in Baghdad. 
we don't think about Baghdad as being a Jewish neighborhood, but once upon a time, before 1948, it was a very Jewish neighborhood. And it, uh, not only quantitatively, but qualitatively, it was a, it was a great congregation with great yeshivas and, and, and leaders and rabbis. And in fact, this story I'm about to tell you was recorded by one of the great rabbis of Baghdad, the uh, Ben Ishchai. So the Ben Ishchai records a story, <clears throat> it's actually in his Sefer on, on Shabbos, about a prominent Baghdad Jew, businessman, who wanted to convert to Islam. Now, just to explain, he didn't want to convert out of any theological conviction or anything like that. He, just for business purposes, there was a certain, there was a ceiling as far as, you know, non-Muslims, how much they could uh, progress in society. And he figured that if he'll become a Muslim, they'll have more privileges. So he was ready to convert. Now, there was a thing that they did there. I don't know if this is common to all of Islam. I doubt it is. I mean, it's a, it's a big religion. There's a lot of different, uh, different uh, denominations and uh, different sects. But the, this particular community in, in Baghdad, they had a rule that the Muslims wouldn't accept a non-Muslim to convert until a clergyman from the, from the person's religion would come to try to talk them out of it. So in this case, the, the, the clergyman was, was the Ben Ishchai. The Ben Ishchai was supposed to come in and try to talk the guy out of it before he would become a Muslim, before the Muslims would accept this Jew as a Muslim. So the Ben Ishchai comes in and he starts giving the guy every powerful argument that he possibly could about why he should not do this. And uh, the guy listens and he's like, Okay, I hear you, but you know what? It's just going to be better for me to be Muslim. So, you know, thank you very much, but I'm, you know, I'm doing it. So the Benish Chai says, you know what? Hold on, guys. Just, just wait. I, I, I'm, I'm calling in for backup. And he found some guy, a simple Jew, who was a childhood friend of this other Jew. And he brings him in. And uh, the Benish Chai realized that all the intellectual arguments weren't working. So he needed, he needed someone more who could speak this guy's language. So he, he gets the, the childhood friend of this guy, and he comes in, and he, and he, he says to his friend, he says, you, you want to you convert? You want to become a, a Muslim? He says, you know, on Shabbat, they serve the hamin, the hot food. You know, Ashkenazim are called chont. Says, you know what, there's an egg in the Hamin. If you become a Muslim, you will never again have that experience of eating the egg from the Hamin on Shabbat. And the guy couldn't do it. And that was it. He couldn't take it. He said, All right, fine, cancel it, call it off. Okay. So why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because here you see the example of that emotional trigger, something so simple. Um, but there's that emotional association. And, and, and it held a Jew. It, it, it held him to his Judaism. And, 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 and that's the way it was. I mean, we, we, we have much experience with this. We know. We know the old trick, you know, of serving the traditional foods and the, the smell of the Jewish cuisine, and it reminds people of their bubby. And there's a, there's a way of awakening 
a uh, the pintalayid in a Jew by, by by playing upon those emotional associations. Okay, but all of a sudden we're dealing with a generation where they don't even have those associations anymore. You know, I I remember I heard once from uh, Rabbi Manus Friedman that he said he realized one day it was at Beis Chana, which was, which was a school for <clears throat> for girls who were, who were becoming observant. So he said there was a line that he would always be able to use. It could always just cut through the the noise and get people to you know to think straight. And he says one day the line didn't work anymore. What was the line? He would say to them, you know what? Enough already. Think about what your bubby would say. And that would always work. Until one day it didn't. Because he realized that times had changed. We'd, be, we, we, we'd progressed so far into Gullus that people didn't remember a religious grandparent anymore. That there were so many generations of assimilation that they didn't have that connection anymore. So, think about it. We are in a time when those connections those emotional connections, those trigger words, don't even work. You know, there used to be a time when a Jew, if you would talk to them about, I mean, if you just, again, maybe it's not fighting fair, but if you just needed to get them to, you know, just, you needed to get through to them somehow. You mentioned the Holocaust, you mentioned the six million, and it would, you know, sober them up. You know, how many Jews didn't get tattoos because I'm saying, I'm saying non-observant Jews. They didn't do it because it, because it's a it's a mitzvah not to. They didn't get a tattoo because because of the Holocaust. Or how many cremations were prevented? I'm talking about non-observant Jews who otherwise wouldn't necessarily value Jewish burial. But how many cremations were stopped because you, after the Holocaust you're going to get a cremation? Or or another example, you know, Israel. There was a time that it didn't matter where a Jew was as far as observance where they were politically. You talk about Israel, and it would all of a sudden they would get very serious. That Jewish pride would come out, and now that's that's not it's not the case. I mean, talk about on campus, the Jewish students there. Not only do they not get excited about Israel, maybe they're even against. They're they're part of BDS because you know they're you know that's that's the culture on campus. So what are we what are we talking about really when we're describing? Uh, uh, a, a reality where Jews don't have those associations anymore. They don't. <clears throat> we don't have those triggers that we used to rely on anymore. So <clears throat> I'll tell you like this: it's uh, fifty-seven eighty right now, Tavshin Pei. Which, by the way, by way of comparison, <clears throat> um, in the uh, Chinese calendar, which is the second oldest calendar. It is 4718, which of course begs the question, if it's 5780 in the Jewish calendar, 4718 in the Chinese calendar, then uh, for 1,062 years, what did the Jewish people order for takeout? That's just a joke. Anyways, um, <laughs> by the way, that's an example of, a, of pure cultural Judaism, of, a Jew of Jewish humor that, uh, you know, a generation ago, would get a laugh. A bunch of college kids, you know, especially in the Pacific Northwest, I don't think they would laugh at that today. Anyways, what, what, what's the point? The point is, 
If it's 5780, that means it's Friday afternoon. What does that mean? So the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us that just like you have the seven-day cycle of the week, there's a seven-millennium cycle of history, timeline of history. You have six millennia, and then the seventh millennium of Shabbos, in other words, Mashiach. So from the year one, from creation, until the year 1,000, that's like Sunday. Then by Monday, the second millennium, that was the flood, right? Uh, then Tuesday, the third millennium, you have uh, the Aves, the Amois, the patriarchs, the matriarchs. And you had going into Egypt and the slavery in Egypt and coming out of Egypt. And you had the revelation uh, at Sinai. And then the, the fourth millennium, that would be like Wednesday. Then both the first and second Besamikdash, both, both temples were built and destroyed. And then on Thursday, the, the, the Talmud was redacted in Babylonia. And Rashi wrote the, the commentaries on, on, on Chumash and, and Gemara while he had crusaders uh, outside in the street. And the Rambam, he fled from uh, Muslim extremists and he wrote the, the Mishnah Torah. That all happened on Thursday. Then on Friday, Friday had the Black Plague, he had the Spanish Inquisition. You had uh, pogroms, you had the Balshemtov, you had the Industrial Revolution, the rise of the Soviet Union, the Holocaust, the fall of the Soviet Union, the invention of the iPhone. That's all Friday. And that brings us pretty much to the present day, which is roughly about 12.40 p.m. Now, anyone who's been in a Shabbos observant home on uh, Erev Shabbos knows how hectic things can get. And eh, that's... What it is right now, but no matter how hectic it gets, eventually, you know, Shabbos comes and things calm down. So, uh, what happens is we're getting closer and closer to redemption. Every generation is getting lower, spiritually lower. We're we're technologically much more advanced than our ancestors, but but spiritually, we're we're on a much lower level. We're we're depleted. There's a story. That, uh, that Meshe Feinstein was once on a, on a plane to Eretz Yisrael, and he happened to have been se- seated next to one of the, the heads of the Israeli socialist labor movement. And after the plane took off, one of his Talmidim came over to uh, Meshe, and he, and, and he says, I brought you your slippers, let me take your shoes. And then later he comes over, I brought the Rav his, uh, his food, and he was you know, taking care of him. And so this leader of this uh, socialist labor party says, you know, I, I'm, I'm amazed about the, the honor that your son gives you. He says, no, this isn't my son. This is my student. If you would see my son, you would see even, you know, real treatment. He says, but don't, don't be jealous. He says, because the guy says, my sons never treat me like this. I never get this kind of derecheretz. So uh, Amisha says, listen, don't, don't, don't feel bad. My, my students and my sons are loyal to my teachings, and, and your, your sons are loyal to your teachings. You see, according to your sons, and what you taught them, they're one generation more evolved than you are. According to my sons, and, and, and our teachings, I'm one generation closer to Matan Torah than they are. So, 
we, we understand very well that every single generation is lower than the previous one. And in fact, you get to a point in history that's called Ikvesa de Mashiach, the heels of Mashiach. What's a heel? A heel has no sensitivity. It's the most callous part of the body. It's coarse. Can't think, can't feel. So there were generations that were like the head. Tanoim, Amaroyim. These were geniuses, geniuses. They were like the head. Then there were generations that were, they weren't like the head, but they were like the heart. They had an emotional connection, a real emotional connection to, to Yiddishkeit. And then time passed, and eventually we got to a point where not only we didn't have the head connection to Yiddishkeit, but we didn't even have the heart connection anymore. In the last generation, before Mashiach comes, you're going to have kids that don't even have an emotional association for a matzah ball. You're not going to be able to push those buttons that give them those emotional reactions or those sentimental, nostalgic reactions. They just don't have that. And you could ask yourself then this very question. How can the sixth year, the weakest, most depleted year, provide for the seventh? In other words, how can the sixth day of creation, meaning Friday, which corresponds to the sixth millennium of history, be the one where the Jews, who are on the lowest level of any generation throughout history, those are going to be the Jews who are going to bring the seventh millennium, who are going to bring Mashiach? Impossible. If anyone was going to bring Mashiach, it should have been those who were like the head, the geniuses, understood godliness, or at least those Jews who were like the heart, who felt what it meant to be Jewish. But now we're a bunch of heels. We don't have head associations, we don't have heart associations, we can't think, we can't feel. We're going to bring Mashiach. Maybe somebody's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather would have brought Mashiach, but if he didn't, how, how is the kid who doesn't know a matzah ball going to bring Mashiach? But here's, here, here's, here's the explanation. This is precisely the point, because it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense that a college student who doesn't know a matzah ball should be at a Shabbos table on Friday night instead of a bar. He doesn't understand what he's doing there. He doesn't even feel why he's there. He's just there. But that's something that his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather could never have done, because his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather understood why he was supposed to be at a Shabbos table, or at least he felt why he should be at a Shabbos table. But the beauty of the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is he doesn't understand it, he doesn't feel it, he's just there. That's devotion. That's devotion, irrational devotion. And when we show this kind of irrational devotion to Hashem, Hashem replies and says, if you can be irrational, so can I. And the yield of the sixth year can be increased to be greater than the yield of any other year. The year that should have been the most depleted, where the soil should have been the most used up and the least productive, is going to be the one that's so productive that it provides for the seventh year. The generation that is the lowest is going to be the one to bring Mashiach. So if you're ever uninspired or unmoved in your, in your Yiddishkeit, just remember this. Just remember. 
Hashem had plenty of Jews throughout history who did mitzvahs with deep understanding and with deep feeling. Our specialty in this generation is we do mitzvahs because we're Jewish. We don't understand it. We don't feel it. We just do it because that's what we're supposed to do. Our ancestors couldn't do that. <laughs> they couldn't do that. They knew why they were doing it. They felt why they should do it. The beauty of our generation is we do it irrationally, out of devotion. Because this is just what we're supposed to do. And Hashem says, if you can be irrationally devoted to me, I'm going to be irrational. I'm going to make something that totally doesn't make sense. This is, this is the generation, the most used up, the most depleted, the lowest generation, the heels of history. Ikvas of the Mashiach. These are the Yidin. Us. Yeah. We're the ones. We're going to provide for the seventh year. We're going to provide and bring the world into Mashiach.